This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Homeland Security Department's Einstein cybersecurity program has been an easy punching bag for so-called experts and lawmakers over the last five months. At hearings and at conferences, the value of Einstein continually has come into question after the solar winds and other cyber attacks. In his weekly Reporter's Notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about why these experts and lawmakers might be misinformed and why the Einstein program is much more successful than most people realize. Jason has the latest. And Jason, before we get into the details of what you're reporting, just a quick reminder about what Einstein is. Einstein is part of a bigger tool set, you know, a common refrain we talk when we talk about cybersecurity, Tom. But this is a program that really started got back in 2005, 2004 timeframe. And really what DHS at the time thought of, okay, we have a lot of network traffic. How do we ensure we know what's going on when that's coming before it comes into federal networks? So it started as an intrusion detection, right? Oh, this is, looks bad. You should do something about it. Over the years, it morphed, it evolved. It said, oh, we should move to better technology. We should improve how it detects malicious code, malicious software. And then they even had the idea of something called Einstein 3A. They started implementing that around the 2009, 2010 timeframe. And that was a intrusion prevention tool as well. Tom, what Einstein is, is it it really tells you what you know, right? And, And this is a good thing. So if a signature, a piece of malicious code is being used somewhere else in the world to to attack systems, what the DHS can do is take that signature, that code, put it into the Einstein tool set and say to agency networks, you you cannot accept this signature if it tries to come in. It can block it. So it, it blocks the known knowns, if you will. And I think that's where people start to lose sight over what Einstein is. It's the solar winds attack and other things were unknown unknowns. So you have to think about it that way. And I think that's where the confusion, a lot of this confusion starts to come in. So you have seen that a lot of critique is coming at the Einstein program because of recent and quite infamous breaches, solar winds and more recently the uh, dark group attack against the pipeline. So what are they saying and what do you think they're not getting quite right? I think there's a miscommunication that's happening. It's It's been a longstanding issue from the Homeland Security Department side, and it's just a misunderstanding about from Congress and other what we'll call the you know so-called experts. And we've seen stories, Tom, very early on after Solar Winds in the Washington Post and the New York Times that really called out, whoa, the government spent a billion dollars. Why didn't they get anything for it? And what th- those folks did not understand and what the Congress continues not to understand is that is not what Einstein is intended to do. What's interesting, Tom, as I started looking to the this story and it started off as okay well what was Einstein intended to do and what is it doing and how has it been successful is the government really getting good value for that a billion dollars that it invested in Einstein over the last you know 15 16 years and what I learned Tom was there is a problem definitely on the DHS side there's definitely over the years whether it's the Trump administration or the Obama administration or the Bush administration before them they have not communicated well and often enough they have not been as transparent as they could on the other hand there's also a con- congressional misunderstanding of what it's supposed to do, and I think that comes from the lack of communication. One other point, Tom, that I think is really interesting that came out during my research for the story is Einstein could have been so much more, and I think that's where this misunderstanding comes from. I'm going to take you back to 2005. Uh, General Keith Alexander was the head of the National Security Agency at the time, and he got a white paper that said, hey, we could put this type of technology in to really – limit or even prevent a lot of most cyber breaches because we're going to put this technology outside the wire, they call it. This idea of we're going to look at the traffic before it even gets into our network. 
Uh, General Alexander was so excited about it, he asked for a pilot by the end of 2005, and then by 2008, it was protecting all of DOD. Now, Tom, what my reporting found out was there was even a move to put this a version of this capability into the Einstein program. I talked to John Felker, a former Coast Guard and DHS cyber official, and he tells me about that they were about to pull the trigger. They were ready to go. And for whatever reason, the deputy secretary at the time of DHS put a stop to it. And, and that really impacted the Einstein's capability to, to potentially, and, and we can't say for sure, stop something like solar winds. Sure. And that's where this misunderstanding really started to creep up because the DHS folks were talking about Einstein as the be-all, end-all, and Congress said, well, if it's the be-all, end-all, it's got to be great. And then when solar winds happens, they go, you told us eight years ago, 10 years ago, that this was the greatest thing since sliced bread, and it's not. Got it. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. So there were some limitations on the program because of funding or whatever. We don't, as you say, we don't know exactly why some of it was throttled back. Would Einstein or did Einstein make any difference in the solar winds attack? Because some government agencies were hit, others were not. I spoke with Matt Hartman, who's the Deputy Executive Assistant Director for Cyber at CISA. He told me absolutely Einstein was a big deal during the solar winds campaign. He said it wasn't just helpful in identifying suspicious network traffic from some some federal civilian agencies and then also helped identify other campaigns. But as soon as they were able to kind of see, okay, this is the suspicious activity we need to be aware of, they were able to put that into the Einstein tool set and then start blocking it and notifying agencies about other bad activity. And I think that's where people lose sight of the importance of Einstein. Once you do know something, it will stop that something. And remember, Tom, we know with cybersecurity, hackers are not all that creative. They use the same tools, the same malicious code over and over again. Why? Because it works. And until you stop them, they will not move on. It's like water, right? It's a path of least resistance. Oh, we can get in through this door. We'll go through that door every time. Yeah, they buy and sell amongst one another, the different effective tools. Absolutely. And what Einstein is meant to do is, okay, we know that this tool affected the healthcare industry or the banking industry or the pipeline industry. We're not going to put that malicious code, that signature into Einstein to stop it. So if someone tries to open that door, that door is going to remain locked because the code, so to speak, won't work. All right. So now we've seen solar winds and then we've seen in the private sector the colonial pipeline attack, which actually two very, very, very different types of attacks with different aims. But nevertheless, they fall altogether under cybersecurity. What is CISA, what is DHS planning to do now to update Einstein once again to be ready for what we know now that we didn't know six, eight months ago? We know that Einstein never really worked well with cloud computing. Agencies are moving more to the cloud. We also know that Einstein, too, specifically had trouble with encrypted data as agencies encrypted more of their data. And we know, Tom, that under the executive order that President Biden just signed, they have to encrypt their data in six months. So what Matt Hartman told me was their goal is to do a couple things. One, modernize how Einstein works. Look at, you know, kind of use Einstein and make it work kind of outside the wire again. They're also looking at Einstein to, okay, how can we use artificial intelligence and machine learning tools? In fact, Matt Hartman talked about these capabilities that they developed are already being tested at two ISPs, Internet Service Providers, under this MTIPS program. That's a lot of acronyms there, Tom, but basically it's it's companies like 
and I don't know for sure, but someone like a Verizon, an AT&T, a Lumen, who are part of the NTIPS program providing security services to agencies, and they're already testing these AI ML tools. They want to maybe expand that into the bigger data issue that they have, because one of the things we know about cybersecurity, it requires you to understand the data and find the needle in the needle of the haystack of needles. And I think that's what these tools are starting to help do. So CISA has a, a vision of where they want to go. And it's not just Einstein alone. It's the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program. It's the Quality Service Management Office, the CUSMO, where they're going to provide cybersecurity shared services. And, you know, CISA got $650 million from Congress in the American Rescue Plan Act, and they're using that as well to move towards zero trust, a whole set of new capabilities. And Einstein will be a piece of it, not the only piece of it. Sure. And that executive order did hint at big spending to be added to cybersecurity by the federal government and for the federal government. We just haven't seen the outlines of that yet either. I think you will start to see that, and the president's supposed to release his full budget in end of May, so another week or so. So I think we'll get to see a little more details there. And then I think going forward, as you see the 2022 and 2023 budget requests, you'll see a little bit more there as well. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. Check out his reporter's notebook. It's now online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style. You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is starting to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned 
that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. 
So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. And you've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second. Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.